Father, thank you for your word and the way that it truly guides us to know you, Lord, in which we find ourselves and our story, all of our joy and our pain, our hurts and our loss, our times of transition, our times of coming, our times of leaving, and our times of growing up. Um, Lord, we find ourselves in you and in your work tonight. Um, Lord, help us to know more clearly who the Lord Jesus is, what it means that God would become a human being and die as a peasant on a cross for us. Lord, what does that mean for us tonight? What does that mean for our souls? What does that mean for our lives? What does that mean for our future? God, help us to know. Help us to know you, to know ourselves, to know our friendships, and the person and the work of your son Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, y'all, welcome to RUF. Uh, this is the last RUF of the semester, and um, I've been saying this for the last, I guess, two years now, three years now, but if I haven't met you, I'd love to meet you. My name is Simon Stokes. actually met someone uh, tonight for the first time, which is cool <laughs> already, um, but I would love to know you more if I could. Um, if you don't know, RUF is a community of people that love each other because we know that Jesus has loved us, and we want to invite you into that and for you to be a part of that with us um, tonight. Um, so also I wanted to make a, a brief announcement before we got started too, um, which is this, that uh, Katie and I are, ex- are expecting our second child. <laughs> uh, yeah, November 4th, November 4th, yeah, uh, we're super excited about that. Much better plan than August 24th, was that right? Was that our birthday? <laughs> <laughs> the last year. <laughs> um, so we're very excited about that. But uh, yeah, if we look tighter next semester, it's, it's, that's the reason. So we're excited to do that. And we're excited to, uh, to do that with y'all and to have that as part of our, 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 the life of our family with, with y'all tonight um, and for the next few years. So uh, I wanted to dive in this tonight. This is my obligatory Lord of the Rings uh, reference here. You can't be a reformed pastor without so many, so this is my quota. I'm ending here. <laughs> but do you remember the end of the Lord of the Rings? Uh, <laughs> and it's what, this was sort of in the movie. This is really in the book. Always read the book. It's always better. Um, the, the movies were great. But at the end of the Lord of the Rings, when the hobbits are kind of arrayed with everybody, Sauron has been defeated. This millennia-old conflict has been done, done away with. Everyone is in a state of rest and just rejoicing and gladness that this thing, this quest, is finally over. And so the hobbits are there, everybody is kind of pageantry and, you know, just dressed to the nines, and they're holding this sort of regalia or party. And in the book, this only is in the movies, but in the book, it says they stop and this minstrel comes and they recount the deeds of everyone that's taken part in this. So it doesn't say how long they're there, but it had to have been a long time, because it's like a thousand page story. Uh, And it says this, it says, as this person is recounting this, that all the host laughed and wept. And in the midst of their merriment and tears, the clear voice of the minstrel rose like silver and gold, and all men were hushed. And he sang to them, now in the elven tongue, now in the speech of the West, until their hearts, wounded with sweet words, overflowed, and their joy was like swords. And they passed in thought to regions where pain and delight flow together, and tears are the very wine of blessedness. One of my favorite parts from Lord of the Rings, right there. Um, and I read it tonight because I want to ask, have you ever had the experience where something so good happened that it was like this wonderful kind of heavy weight was just pressing down on your chest 
and it brought you to sort of tears? Like you were so glad that like you kind of cried? I remember when uh, Emery was born and Katie was in labor, and I, I had to drop her off at the front of the UNC hospital over here, and I had to go and park our car. And I remember like running across the parking lot with our bags and everything like that, and being so happy and so excited and just like bawling as I'm crossing the parking lot. Because <laughs> our kid is about to be born. This is awesome. <laughs> it's like nine months of waiting and being excited and, and waiting even before that when we, after we got married. Um, there's just some joy that just leads to something beyond itself. That uh, the joy that, pic- that Tolkien is saying here, I don't know if you caught it, but he says that the joy that they experience here is like swords which is hard to figure out what it means. I think it means this, that it is so beautiful and thrilling and amazing, but at the same time it pierces and it hurts. That from it tears flow, and yet that's the very wine of blessedness. The picture that he gives here is a picture of the end of not only his story, but the story of history. That death and evil are defeated, the lowly are raised up and honored, that all the stories of everyone who's taken part in this massive event are told and everyone just kind of realizes this is what it's about. It's finally over and we're done. Songs are sung, rest and feast and celebration come together and the work of removing the stain of darkness can begin. And in the midst of it, the king reigns in triumph. Tolkien gives us a picture of the glory that we all long for And if you've ever read the story or gotten to the movies and found yourself moved and wondered why, then know it's because you were made for it. The pictures that the Bible gives us of this end of the story, of the glory of heaven, is that it's a marriage, that it's a feast, that it's this lovely dwelling that's both city and garden. It's a place of rest and work that's similar to the earth in the sense that everything that's lovely and good here is there, but everything that's vile or wicked here is not there. It's a picture of glory where our longings are met and perfected. And the image that Hebrews gives us of the Christian life, that it's given us the last couple of weeks, is that the Christian life is like this long run through a desert place, that it's hard, that you're persevering, that you're enduring, but that the destination is glorious. And the picture that it gives us here tonight is, is that glory that you were made for. I think the problem that we encounter is this, though. It's not that we don't want good things. It's not that we don't want glorious things. We all want those things. But our problem is that we trade those good things, cap, small, small case G glory, in exchange for those, the greater G glory that we really want. And what Hebrews is trying to do is trying to train us to long and to pursue and to seek after that glory. And to do that, we just have to have a picture of what that is. So tonight, I want to talk about two things. I want to talk about two things tonight. I want to talk about what is the glory that we're passing by? And what is the glory that we're coming to? What's the glory we're passing by? What's the glory we're coming to? So one, let's look at the first couple of verses here. What's the glory that we're coming to? For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. You know, the experience of God's people interacting with God in the Old Testament was that there was glory there. 
There was holiness. But because of who God is and because of the way the world is and the way people are and the fallenness of it, there's just barriers that are there. I mean, the whole of the Old Testament and the glory there and the restrictions that are there, that's real because it's kind of an object lesson in God's holiness, but it's also an object lesson in our sinfulness. Think about it like this. You see at night stars in the sky. And you see them, but there's really only one star that you and I experience like on a day-to-day basis, and that's the sun. You feel its heat. It's 93 million miles away, which seems far, but it's really not that far. And the radiance of the sun and the fullness of light just sends its heat in all directions. You and I can go to the beach. We can get sunburned. You can get a suko and get sunburned. I've done that many times. Uh, and you can think to yourself, yeah, I'm experiencing the sun. Ouch. But to be, to be fair, you're not experiencing the fullness of the sun. If you were to do that, you would be vaporized, right? And from the familiarity of it, we see the sun every day, and we don't think to ourselves, that there is a giant death ball of fire. But it is. <laughs> uh, and when we say, you know, I'm cold, I'd like to experience the sun, strictly speaking, no, you don't. It wouldn't be a good idea. You want to experience the sun from a safe distance with the right kind of mediation, right? So with that in mind, think about God's glory. Think about God's glory in the way that it shows up in the Bible. If I were to ask you, do you want to experience the glory of God? I think most people would say yes. Like, I don't want to just know about that glory. I want a real experience with that glory. But bear this in mind that people in the Bible have a direct experience with the glory of God are either terrified or just die. Right? Mount Sinai, the the thing that it's referencing here, is just a mountain. It's a regular mountain until the glory of God comes down on it and then everything goes haywire. And it's so terrifying that people beg Moses saying, you go talk to God for us. We will do whatever he says, but if we hear that voice again, it is going to kill us. And Moses goes up there and he says, I'm terrified. This is crazy. When the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 6, who's a priest for Israel, believes in God, is a holy person, when he sees the robes of God in a vision in the temple, he is undone. He's terrified. He cries out, woe is me when he sees God's glory. I've never had an experience where I see something and say, woe. It's never, there's nothing that dramatic that's ever happened to me. Isaiah has it happen to him when he sees God's glory. Do we want an experience with God? Yes. How do we survive that? Through Jesus. Hebrews 1, going all the way back to the beginning of the sermon series, says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. All analogies break down on some level. But think about this, that just as the fullness of the sun is to God the Father, so the fullness of the sunshine is to God the Son. The the way that you experience the sun without it frying you is through the sunshine. That you experience the glory of God without it undoing you is through Jesus. Why is that important? Why is that important here? Let me say a word to the person who's not a Christian, who's here, and if you're here, we're so glad you're here. Please come back um, next year. (laughs) <laughs> this is the last one or see me at the end of this we'll talk uh, <laughs> maybe you're here and you know you're not a Christian and you're thinking alright I know that on some level I think there's a God and he or she or whatever it is I don't know exactly how to think about it but I would like to be hooked up with that and I'd like to see uh, them or communicate with them or it on some level and like just know about it and have an experience with God's glory okay great how do I approach that 
Because think about what the scriptures say about God. That he's a consuming fire. You don't want to be consumed, do you? If you're not a Christian, right, I don't. (laughs) If you're not a Christian, you cannot approach God on your own terms. Don't say to yourself, I think I'm just going to start having a relationship with God and I'm just going to do it now. Here we go. That would be like having a relationship with the surface of the sun. It would just not end well. But how does the story of the Bible go? That when we could not approach the light, the light approached us. And that did not mean that everybody wanted that. It takes some of the control that we long for out of our hands. The gospel said that some people said, no thanks. But if the light is really the light, then it comes on its terms and not ours. And internally, that can be a barrier for some people. I get that. But you just can't go to the light on your own terms. Because the light, the sun, has come to us in the person of Jesus. Does that mean that he's safe? No. I mean, he does things in our lives that just like strip away our sense of control sometimes. And that's hard. And yet he loves us. But when sinners come to God through Jesus, they can survive the experience of God's glory. And the reason that we keep harping on Jesus is because no one else is the radiance of the glory of God. We want you to have an experience with God's glory. I want to have an experience with God's glory. But there's only one way, through knowing Jesus. We can't do it on our terms. It has to be through Him. And that's what the story of the Old Testament is about. That people wanted an experience with God, and with His holiness, and with who He is. God wanted that too. But He needed someone to go between as a mediator. And so that's where we're at in the story now. So what is the glory that we have to come to? What's the glory we have to come to? Um, do you remember the scene in Star Wars when Luke and is trying to convince Han Solo that we need to go rescue Leia? They're, I think they're on the Death Star at this point. And Luke promises him, he's trying to work Han on all the kind of levels that Han works. And Han is kind of a, a rogue, smuggler kind of guy. And Luke is saying, well, you know, she's a princess, she's rich. She can reward you handsomely. And Han just kind of stops and says, how rich? And Luke says, well, beyond anything that you can imagine. I don't know, kid. I can imagine a lot. <laughs> you know? When we think about heaven and we, can think, we think about the glory that we're going to, we can imagine a lot. There's a lot of stuff out there in kind of pop culture about what heaven is like and what it's not like. Scripture does a lot, though, with the imagery that it provides to us. It tells us about white robes, about wedding feasts, about new names about being a pillar in God's temple. It's all imagery that, you know, to some point, it's kind of points to something indescribable. That heaven by necessity is sort of a different mode of being, one which we don't kind of have access to right now. But we need some sense of what it's about to kind of have a sense of where we're going. And Scripture gives us that sense in the best possible way. Think about this. One of the images that's shown up here is that Heaven is like this ongoing party. It talks about angels and festal gathering. That's like a very formal name for angels are dressed in their party gear. Uh, that's right. I don't even know what that would look like, but it's probably awesome. Uh, top hats, monocles, I don't know. <laughs> but there's a sense in which heaven is this ongoing party and where things are happening and there's this kind of continuing flow of time. Yet at the same time, heaven is going on forever into eternity. That there's this eternal aspect to it that's beyond us. And weird or still, both of those things are happening at the same time. There's a flow of events and a flow of time, and it's eternal. I mean, think about how pe- that helps people like us. Because that can sound kind of esoteric. Think about us who experience change. I mean, we're in a time of change right now. It's the end of the semester. People are going. New people will come. Some of us are transitioning to a higher grade. Some of us are not. Um, don't tell your parents yet. 
<laughs> but you know what's hard about change? Is that however you change or grow, that whatever way you gain, you lose something too. That college is a place full of change, which means that we're constantly growing. But it also means that we're constantly losing. And this sort of flux and change can be really hard. But it's part of what it is to grow in time, right? But in heaven, it's different. In heaven, you don't stop experiencing time. You're always growing more lovely in knowledge and wisdom and glory. There's change that's going, yet at the same time, it's change that's somehow eternal. So you don't lose anything either. It's not like I'm get, putting on this new experience and so I'm having to drop old experiences. There's no need for nostalgia about the past or uncertainty about the future. Every moment is somehow perfect, and yet every moment is somehow also changing. Think about that. It is rest and celebration without the fear of boredom or things becoming stale. We love to grow. We love to see new things and meet new people and have new experiences, but we hate the loss that comes with that. And the hope of heaven's glory is that there is an end to that loss without an end to that growth. It's just eternal human flourishing. Because what does the writer say that you've come to? A city that can't be moved or shaken to a party put on for you by God where angels are there with monocles or whatever to celebrate you and God's work through you. And that is not a temporary deal. That is forever. And yet it's a place of rest. It says you have come too, right? Like, what does that mean that it's in the past tense? I haven't gotten there yet, I don't think. It means the hope of glory is so certain that it's like it's already here. It is so certain for you, it's already in your possession. Some of you, I think, want a sense of belonging so badly that you spend every waking moment chasing it. But if you got it, it still wouldn't be enough. You'd be afraid you'd be afraid you'd be found out. Or if it was a good fit with these group of people or this thing, maybe it wouldn't be the best fit. Maybe there's something better. There'd be something your heart would be chasing in that experience. And yet the certainty and the hope of the glory of heaven is that this is where you belong. That you're already found out in the gospel. You're a sinner and yet you're here in heaven partying because of Jesus' work. It's the place where you'll be perfected and where you'll not be able to be put to shame. This is the place where the souls of the righteous are made perfect. The place where God himself will welcome you into his presence. That right now you are in exile, is what the Bible says. That this is not your home. And you need to acknowledge that and move into that longing that you feel. Not so that you can be constantly disappointed. But so you can keep journeying and getting to that place where your heart can finally rest. Do you want to know why some of us are so cynical? Because we expect earth to be like heaven. And then of course it's disappointing and we feel defeated. And we just need a realistic sense of what's heavenly and what's not to help us temper our expectations. Like if I'd gone to Lenore today and I expected it to be a five-star restaurant where like the meat was well-cooked um, and delicious, like that would be oh so disappointing, wouldn't it? <laughs> like, but if I go to Lenore today and I expect that one of the better things in there is going to be the cereal that no one has touched since somebody six months ago in a factory put that in a bag then I'm not too bummed when the pizza tastes like cardboard. It's Lenore. This is what I'm expecting. No reason to be cynical here, right? Some of us are perfectionists, and this can be really hard to hear. But life in a fallen world is always going to have some level of disappointment to it. 
There's no way around that. And if you encounter the cardboard pizza equivalent of plenty of things, that's okay. This isn't heaven. We have to adjust our expectations to what will be served now. Look, the promises of glory are that we will be like Christ, we will be with Christ, we will rule with Christ, we will have glory, not just something like you could possess like this keyboard, but you will have glory in the same sense that you have hair and eyes and skin. That it will be a part of you in the way that you possess your body that will be a part of you. That we will be entertained and feasted and celebrated. Like Those are the promises of heaven. The promises of exile now and life in a fallen world are that we are not yet with Christ. We are not like Christ yet. We don't yet rule with Christ or have His glory in the way that we will or participate in this blowout celebration at the end of history. And if that's the case, then I don't have to be cynical or fatalistic. I can be biblically realistic. That cynicism is saying, I see nothing good here. All of this is worthless. And biblical realism is saying, you know, I see some good stuff here. It's not all worthless, but it's not what it could be or what it should be. And you just need to know this as you become an adult. Because to be honest, it will probably, be easy, it will probably not be easier to be a Bible-believing Christian in 10 years than it is today. If anything, it will probably be harder. And you need to be able to look around and say, this is not my home. My citizenship is in heaven. I'm journeying towards glory. And my heart's desires are not going to be met in my job, in my marriage, in my children, in my claim, maybe whatever success I might have, in financial security. Those things are fine. If you get those things, awesome. But neither will my heart be dashed by the uncertainty of those things. That my heart's desires are too strong to be met by those My longings will only be satisfied by Jesus and his glory. All right, go back to Tolkien here. Go back to Tolkien with me because I'm a nerd and I love him. Um, No, snaps. (laughs) He once wrote an essay called On Fairy Stories. And he tries to understand and kind of unpack what's the appeal of the fantastic or the supernatural. Like, why do we like Harry Potter? Why do we like Guardians of the Galaxy, Lord of the Rings so much? And he says the reason is that we're so fascinated by these stories in which people step out of time in which they escape from the power of death, where they have love without loss, communication with non-human beings, right? And where good finally triumphs over evil. That any story that depicts those things, we cannot get enough of. Your English teacher says, read Hemingway, and your heart screams, give me Dumbledore, right? (laughs) We want this stuff. We need it to keep going. Why? Why? Atheists have their own explanation. Tolkien concludes something totally different. That everyone knows on some level that those are the kind of stories that we were made to inhabit. Tolkien essentially ends his essay by saying this. That if Jesus is really the person the Bible makes him out to be, then through faith in him, you will literally experience the things that our hearts long for. That Christianity is a history with real people, real places, real events. It's real. It's about this place and this time but that it answers our deepest longings for a story where we get the things that seem most fantastic, and yet we want them anyway. If you're a Christian, do you realize that you will get all those things? That one day you will step out of time, and you will escape the power of death, and you will have love without parting, and you will talk to non-human, sentient beings, and you will finally see good triumph over evil in such a way that evil never returns. And if you're here and you're not a Christian and you know that, then at least stay and check this stuff out thoroughly. The deepest longings of your heart might be met in them. 
We long for the things that Tolkien talks about because the world isn't the way it's supposed to be. And this is where Christ steps in, I think. That in glory, all the promises of Jesus to his people are fulfilled. Change without loss and rest without end. No more distraction or anxiety or fear and security. No more partings. You'll experience God in his glory. And you will finally feel, think about this with your guilt, you will finally feel as clean as you've always been in him. You will finally understand yourself and the story of your life. That your life story, no matter how humdrum and normal it may seem, that when all is said and done and you stand in glory, it will be amazing. Because it will be part of this larger, exceptionally glorious story that God is telling through Jesus and his church. I mean, how many of us, especially around finals, can look at our work and say, why am I even doing this? It's not even going to be that good when I finish it. We can do that with the Christian life too. Why would I care about my roommate or sacrifice for people who are just going to hurt me? Why am I going to try this job that is hard or join a church that's full of sinners? Because the promise of Scripture is that God will take our half-hearted efforts and our things that are done but not done that great, and He will transform them and bring unimaginable glory out of it. C.S. Lewis in The Weight of Glory, an amazing essay on heaven and what we're made for. I really recommend it. You can Google it and find it. It's so great. He says that everyone is constantly working towards either becoming an eternal monster that you'd only know maybe in your worst nightmares, or this eternal godlike creature that t- pay, takes part in the life of the Trinity. And if you were to see that person now, you'd be tempted to worship. That civilizations, stars, galaxies, nebula will wear out, but people are forever. And so your work in the church, and your work in RUF, and your work with the people here in this room, and with the people you meet on campus, is eternally important. And in glory, you will finally understand all of that. Look at verse 24 here, because I think this is one of the best parts of it. That Jesus, It says, Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and of the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Now, I don't know if you know this story, but Cain and Abel takes place in Genesis 4. Abel is the innocent brother who's killed because he's more godly than his not very godly brother Cain, who killed him. Um, Sign of not being very godly, you're a murderer. Uh, <laughs> that Abel's brother, Abel's blood, after he's murdered, it calls out to God. And it calls out for vengeance. But this says that Jesus' blood speaks a better word than that. Because Jesus is the innocent brother who's also murdered because he's so godly. And yet, what does his blood call out for? Mercy and glory. What about all the crap that I've done this semester and that I think about and I hate myself for? Jesus' blood says mercy. What about all the stuff that I look back on in the last four years and I think, I wasted a lot of time here. And I could have done so much more. And I just, I hate myself for it. Jesus' blood says mercy. What about the fact that I just, I have this expectation for myself and where I'm going to be And I'm so afraid that if I don't live up to that, I don't know what I'm going to do. Jesus' blood says mercy and glory. Y'all, your temptation in life is to drown your longing for glory. 
and counterfeits that would satisfy. And food or drink and sex and money and fame and power, whatever. Those things are fine, but they're not the glory you were made for. But what Hebrews is saying is that Jesus' blood has opened the door to our heart's desires. That He has granted us access to the throne of God. And we are invited into a deep and abiding relationship with God. And our privilege is to run as hard as we can to that. That because of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, you are invited to a party where you are celebrated and you will celebrate. And for some of us, that could be tomorrow. For others, it could be 60 years from now. But do not stop to enjoy the counterfeits when you could press on to the real thing. You are made for more than that. You were long. You long for more than that. So I'll end with this, because nobody said it better than Lewis in The Weight of Glory. He says this, that apparently then, our lifelong nostalgia, our longing to be reunited in the universe with something which we now feel cut off from, to be on the inside of some door which you've always seen from the outside, is no mere neurotic fancy. You're not crazy if you want this stuff. But it's the truest index of our real situation. And to be at last summoned inside would be both glory and honor beyond all our merits and also the healing of that old ache. You ache for glory, and yet you're welcomed inside with glory and honor beyond your merits because of the blood of Jesus. And my invitation to you now and forever is to run and to ache, and not to be satisfied with anything that would numb that ache, but to seek its end in the healing and the rest and the glory that Jesus gives us through his blood. That's what you're made for. That's what REF is about. That's what I hope you leave with if you're graduating. As always, that's my invitation to you. Let me pray for us. Father, you love us and you invite us into glory. God, that all of our life, all the life of faith is not about crosses and pain and despair and hurting. But Lord, it's about redemption. It's about light and glory and hope and laughter and joy. God, that all the pain and sadness and darkness in the world one day will be wiped away and will be no more. And flooding into that space and overwhelming it. Lord, covering it as the waters cover these seas. Lord, will be your glory. And the presence of your son Jesus and his rule and his reign forever. And the party that you're inviting your people to. God, let us persevere into that. Let us run into that. Let us seek our life, our hope. God, all our desires and the deep ache in our heart. And the person and work of your son Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Will you all stand and sing with us?